Hi friends, it's Wednesday and we have quite a show planned for you. We really do. We're going to start off by covering two emerging abortion stories across the U.S. as well as the reboot of Blue's Clues. And later on I'll be sitting down with actor Dennis O'Hare, so we'll see you on the timeline. <laughs> Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And here at AM to DM, we love a little nostalgia. So we got a treat for you this morning from Jessica McCartney. Guess who's coming back? Blue is coming back, and she's brought a new friend named Josh. I can't wait for this reboot and what Josh and Blue have in store for us this November. Timothy De La G tweeted, As a little kid, I never saw an Asian dude on the kitty shows, or any shows. I'm about to watch this new Blue's Clues just to support my peoples. We out here in 2019. We are really out Ooh. here. Are you a big Blue fan? Was this something you watched as a younger person? You know, I think I just missed the whole Blue's Clues thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a little bit too old, but I'm really here for the representation. <laughs> Wait, what is too old for Blue? Shows. I mean, like 13. <laughs> please, I would say like nine. I don't, gosh, I don't even know. Blues, it, Blues Clues is for everyone. Yes, and I exactly. didn't watch it. And you didn't watch it. I did not watch it because my little sister uh, was a big fan of Blues Clues, her and her friend. I remember watching it as a kid. And I was like, that's our girl's show. I can't watch it. But secretly, I wanted to watch it really badly. Um, so I just avoided it at all costs. Uh, but I found out today that Blue is female identified. She it uses she and her pronouns. And I thought Blue was male identified for a long um, time. We can have a conversation later about, about you me projecting, projecting. <laughs> you know, onto this little CGI dog. She's got, a, you know, her friend Magenta, also, you know, female identified yeah. out here. But I really am excited about how this show is going to maybe disrupt some things yes. for some young people who are watching it. Um, Joshua De La Cruz was recently the understudy in the musical Aladdin. Incredible. So it's pretty exciting for him as yeah. well. And he was being trained by Steve, the original. Steve, the dad original one. He's yes. the dad, right? A blue? I, or friend. Perhaps. I don't, I don't know. know. Steve is a man that lives in a house with a dog. <laughs> we don't know yes. the relation. So yes. anyway, well, let's take it to the timeline. What childhood show would you like to see get a reboot? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. So what are you thinking? What do you want to see? You know, I would like to see Rugrats get a reboot, perhaps. Um, I actually, we got news this morning that there is already going to be some yes. kind of Rugrats reboot. But I have to say that seeing Chucky, he was a redhead. <laughs> I was a redhead as a kid. His anxiety. It really always resonated with yeah. me. Yeah. So I mean, I so one of my best friends made me a Susie painting. Um, oh, Susie is the black character in yeah. Rugrats. I am black, and I love black people. So she hangs above my bed, and it says "Got Melanin." It's one of my favorite things I own. I and so love I that. would also co-sign a Rugrats reboot. So I'll be watching that if it comes. But the other one that I don't think is getting a reboot is Hey Arnold. But I want to switch it up because it's Helga. The, Helga, the like squad yes. lover yes. character, justice for. Helga, she was ahead of her time. Yes. I need, was, yeah. I need our young people to know that you're going to love a man that will never love you back, and it's okay, and you'll outgrow that. <laughs> I mean, that got very real very quickly. <laughs> and that's what I need. I need Again, you are, you're working out some stuff with I the am. children's cartoons, but I, I guess teach the youth some lessons early breathe. on. Oh, my God. Anyway, so switching gears a bit today, we're going to take you some sadder news out there. Uh, yesterday, the Supreme Court declined to rule on an Indiana law banning abortions due to race, sex, or disability. What really shocked Twitter was what Justice Clarence Thomas had to say on the matter. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News legal reporter Zoe Tillman. Justice Thomas wrote a 20-page concurrence about the part of the Indiana law prohibiting abortions based on race, sex, disability. He believes abortion is being used for, quote, eugenic goals and supports the law, keeping in mind that for now, Indiana cannot enforce his part of the law. And here's another tweet from Zoe. 
Thomas bounces between talking eugenics in the context of birth control, which is not what the Indiana law is about, and abortion. He stresses the potential of abortion and eugenics goals and points to a few studies about abortion rates regarding sex and disability. Zoe Tillman joins us now from DC. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. So first, what exactly would this Indiana law do if allowed to move forward? So this law, which dates back to March 2016, it's actually taken two years um, to get up to the Supreme Court. And if it were to take effect, it would effectively ban women um, from having abortions, and it would specifically make it illegal for providers to give abortions to women who are doing so because of the fetus's identified race, sex, or disability status. Um, It wouldn't make uh, women criminally liable for doing so, but it would effectively outlaw practice and impose penalties for providers who do perform them. Um, The Supreme Court basically said this is the first time this issue has come up to us. Uh, The Seventh Circuit actually said that Indiana could not enforce this law. They vacated it. And the Supreme Court said that until other circuits weigh in on this, it's too soon for the justices to do so. And so they let that Seventh Circuit decision stand, which means the law is not going to take effect, but it definitely teed it up for the future if similar uh, laws are passed in other states and those cases make it up to the Supreme Court in the future. Thank you for that, Zoe. So a lot of people were talking about Clarence Thomas's opinion. Can you walk us through what he was saying and what he meant by that? And also, is it common for judges in the Supreme Court to comment saying they want a law to happen before it even becomes law? Yeah, so, you know, even when the court decides not to hear a case, uh, justices have flexibility to still weigh in and say how they feel about it. Um, In this case, Justice Thomas agreed with the decision not to hear the Indiana case right now. Uh, So he issued what's known as a concurrence. He agreed. But he took the opportunity to say that, nevertheless, he thinks that this law would support the state's interest um, in in how these procedures are carried out and basically said that he believes there's evidence that abortion is being used to further eugenic goals. And eugenics, as we may remember from history class, was a prominent movement in the early 20th century that basically said that um, African-Americans, other minorities, individuals with disabilities, that they're inferior and that steps should be taken to reduce their populations. It was a, a racist movement. Um, that has since largely fallen out of favor. Um, But what Justice Thomas said is that birth control and abortion, keeping in mind this case is only about abortion, not birth control, but Justice Thomas said, you know, historically birth control and abortion have been seen as ways to further eugenics movements. And as a result, it's dangerous as a practice, and it sets a dangerous precedent um, if women are allowed to choose Uh, abortions because of, say, uh, a fetus is diagnosed as being likely to have Down syndrome. And he basically said that for that reason, he would support a law like Indiana's going forward. Um, Now, groups like Planned Parenthood and reproductive rights groups say that this is all about just restricting women's ability to get health care, to get birth control, to get abortion, that saying things like this is eugenics is a red herring, it's meant to scare people, and it's not actually founded in any real research or data on what's happening right now and the reasons that women are choosing to have abortions. That was a a big piece of the conversation I saw happening yesterday 
all across Twitter. And of course, right now, this is a really big flashpoint in the national conversation, as a lot of these different bans have been introduced at a state level. Um, to what extent does the Supreme Court consider public opinion? Uh, or, or to what extent is the Supreme Court impacted by public opinion when, when something is such a fierce debate? They're not supposed to care at all. And if you ever ask any of them, they would say they don't pay attention to it. It doesn't factor at all into their decisions. But let's be real. These are human beings. These are people who are aware of what's going on in the world. They're aware of the conversation around this. Justice Thomas even cited in his concurrence op-eds by conservative columnists. He's reading the literature out there on the right when it comes to this issue. Um, so, you know, to say that they are completely impervious and exist in a bubble and unaware of what the dialogue is, I think is unrealistic. You know, whether they feel that they're able to put that aside in making their decisions is a different question um, and one that's very hard to answer without being inside their brains. Um, but, you know, they are very aware of the dialogue and they're very aware of public perception of the court. And, you know, just to what extent that factors into their decisions, it's hard to say unless we actually see that they're citing to these sources from the outside world and from that outside dialogue around this. Right, right, right. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for walking us through that. It was quite a conversation yesterday, and I, I feel a lot more knowledgeable on it as you walk me through that. But before we let you go, we understand that special counsel Robert Mueller is going to make a statement at 11 a.m. Are you getting any intel on what he's going to say? We have no idea what he's going to say. He has been quiet for two and a half years. This is the first time that he will publicly make a statement since he became special counsel. He has remained quiet through thick and thin, through attacks from the president, through major developments in his investigation. Um, so it is anyone's bet for the next 40, 45 minutes what he's going to say until he steps up to the microphone. Ooh. This is quite a big deal. Busy morning for you, Zoe. <laughs> well, Zoe, thank you so much for taking time to uh, spend with us, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Well, now on to another story about reproductive health care. Emma O'Connor tweeted, Missouri could lose its last abortion clinic this week due to targeted regulations, trap laws intended to make it difficult for abortion clinics to exist. Planned Parenthood is suing to stop that from happening. BuzzFeed News has this story on how the state's last remaining clinic stands to lose its license this week. BuzzFeed News reporter Emma O'Connor joins us now. Hi, Emma. Hi, how's it going? Good morning, it's going well. So let's just jump right in here. What are the trap laws and how might they force this clinic to actually shut down now? So TRAP stands for Targeted Regulations of Abortion Providers. Um, they're laws that have existed for a really long time in the states um, that regulate abortion clinics with regulations such as um, the hallways need to be a certain size so two gurneys can pass each other or you need to perform X, Y, and Z unnecessary exams before an abortion. And basically, they are trying to make it so that no abortion clinic can fully comply with all of these laws and are forced to shut down. Um, so the way that this happened in Missouri is that there were a whole bunch of requirements, including um, having to perform pelvic exams for women who are getting both surgical and medical abortions. Um, a medical abortion is when you take a pill and have a miscarriage either in the doctor's office or in your home. Um, and they refused to perform a pelvic exam for a medical abortion because they said it was totally unnecessary. One doctor even said that it was bordering on harassment or assault. 
um, being forced to do that sort of invasive procedure for someone who didn't need it uh, by the state. So that was one of the reasons. Um, but basically, the, the state isn't renewing their abortion license. It's a Planned Parenthood clinic. So they can stay open and perform other, um, other services like providing birth control or doing well woman exams. But if the state doesn't renew their license to perform abortions on Friday, then it's going to be the last clinic in the state to close. Um, to, to, yeah, the first clinic that um, in the whole country uh, to, to close, like the last state, um, sorry, that uh, will have, have, any, have, no cl- have no clinics in, in the U.S. So um, it's going to be a really big deal. And this is, a, this is something that has existed for a really long time, these trap laws all around America and still exist today. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned is that a provider said that this amounted to harassment. Um, what are Planned Parenthood officials uh, saying about these reasons why the clinic might have to close? They're saying that it's entirely political, um, that it's completely unnecessary, um, all of the regulations that are put on them and that, basically what I just said. Um, And they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Uh, There's been similar laws um, in other states. There's been similar uh, lawsuits um, that have actually prevented last clinics from closing in other states and even gone to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has ruled in the past that these sorts of targeted regulations are illegal. So Planned Parenthood is suing to keep the clinic open, um, and there is the the law and past decisions on their side. Great. And are there any other states that are also seeing this similar situation? Are there any others that have only one clinic left, too? Yeah. So there's uh, a bunch. Um, I'm just reading from, from a tweet that I tweeted earlier. It's Kentucky, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, and West Virginia all have one clinic left. Um, and... Yeah, they've all been targeted. Uh, They all have trap laws um, and they're all suffering a very similar fate. Um, So, so far as we know, none of them are impending for closure, but it's only a matter of time and it's only a matter of having to renew their licenses for abortion. Mm. And, you know, hopefully now if this issue hasn't been on folks' radar, they will understand that there are this handful of states that also only have one clinic. So, Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. And coming up on today's show, I'll be sitting down with actor Dennis O'Hare from the new season of Big Little Lies. But up next, we are taking a moment to cleanse the timeline. Usa, usa. Some sage. Some yes, yes. with fire tweets. Fire! Fire! Oh hey there, Twitter. Welcome back. Before we jump into fire tweets, we've been hearing from you about your favorite shows that you want to see rebooted. And I think Alex has got some tea for us I on sure that one. I sure do. Cindy Martinez said, Daria equals reboot. And damn, I could not agree more with that. It's, I freaking it, love Daria. And it's happening though, right? And it is happening. We just Bless heard it. that there is indeed a Daria reboot. Yep. And I just want to say, Jane, another one of those characters that made me realize I was queer. Oh, even though it's a cartoon. God. So I'm this is change. the gay agenda in work. <laughs> We're launching the show to make everyone gay. That is the gay agenda. Now let's get to these fire trees. Let's get to the fire trees. Great. So, Brandy, you tweet it. The wisdom of age is mainly knowing which fancy products are worth the money. High-end sheets? Alas, absolutely. Weirdly expensive condiments? Literally never. Where's the lie here? There's no lie. There is a lie. There is because if you notice, you go to a white tablecloth restaurant that's fancy, you know, your burger costs 30 bucks, the ketchup is terrible. Every time. No good. No good. 
I'm like, don't mess up a classic. Just give me Heinz. Like, I don't need anything fancy. I just need a basic condiment. Mm-hmm. Sheets on the other. Yeah, sheets is like you should live. You should other. sleep in luxury. Sheets transfer to a dream, to a type of living, to a hope, a they prayer, do. maybe. Yes. <laughs> well, before I get too carried away, I'm gonna go to the next tweet. Legend, you tweeted, summertime in New York City is so expensive. It's like $20 to even look outside. And Dan, this one also yes, really resonated yes. with me because I have recently been introduced to the concept of a $20 brunch drink. I thought $20 was for just the mimosa. You're over here like <laughs> upgrading your life. Like yeah. I need a martini, I need yeah. two martinis, and then the bill is what, 200 bucks? Uh, yeah, you're just hemorrhaging your money for some tasty beverages. Yep. But you are a recent New York City transplant. I am, and New York is more expensive than people actually let you know. My first day here, my credit card was shut off because I kept buying water at various locations, and my bank was like, girl, where are you, and why is water $4? What like, is going on? I just Isn't live in New York free? City now. I just free. live in New York City now. God, so that's what I tell them. I live <laughs> in New York City, I'm here. <laughs> so we on to the next tweet. We got Fifi. Fifi tweeted, you don't have to announce the social media break, you can just take it. And Twitter, I want you to hear this. Follow this rule closely, because this is my biggest annoyance when I read an Instagram post that says, I'm taking a break. I'm over social media, but please like this photo 3,000 times to make me know that you'll love me when I come back. I don't agree with this. Tactic. Doesn't it defeat the purpose of the break if you just keep on coming back? Yeah. I feel like people, people are trying to like fuck with the, the algorithm. Mm-hmm. They're like, I'm taking a break. I'm like shocking the system. Like you go cold turkey and then you come back and Instagram's like, welcome back. You're going to be put on everyone's feeds at all times. So it may be just like an influencer approach. Interesting. I'm, just, I'm throwing it out, out there. Instagram will call me. I don't know if that's true. Don't try it. Everybody follow Zach's advice. <laughs> Don't Go on your break, make it a real break. You know, all of that. All right, next tweet. Very Small River, you tweeted. I'm not sure if I've ever met a man who says he's a history buff without that history either being World War II or the Roman Empire. So we talked about this earlier. All of my high school teachers that taught, you, taught U.S. history or any form of history were all men. College men. So it is true that men are obsessed with history because maybe it just centers their stories. What, I, what, hold on, hold on. <laughs> history centering men's stories? Pa- I never heard patriarchy, of such a thing. Crazy, yeah. crazy. You know, I am fed up of this Eurocentric patriarchal <laughs> history. I am so done Alex was with ranting, it. Ranting. Yeah, I don't want to hear, like, leave those kinds of history buffs at home. I don't want to hear it. Yes, but I will say that I did have a few professors, or one professor in college, uh, Dr. Robin. Uh, Shout she, out to Dr. Robin. She, she's incredible. Uh, she taught French history, and she's a core black woman. Amazing, changed my oh, life. Oh, that's incredible! So thank you, Robin, for being my one female historian. Me, Robin. What is going on with the world? All right. So we have the tweet of the day. We're going to do this together, which I'm yes. still learning how to do things together. So let's do it. One, <laughs> one two, two, three. three. And it comes from Anna. Anna says, "Him? What's your fantasy? Me? It's pretty crazy. Him? Come on, tell me. Me? Sometimes when I'm alone." I think about a museum organized entirely chronologically as opposed to geographically. And Alex, I must share with you today on 10:24 a.m. Eastern Time. I did not realize museums were organized geographically <laughs> until I read the street. You actually thought that they had always been chronological. This is what Oprah would say is my aha moment. Wow, I'm like, that's so why bad. this is like this in world. But would you want to go to a museum that's chronological? I mean, you know, I have to admit, I think that I haven't even realized that they aren't chronological Oh, there, there we go. But I would totally oh like, when God. it would make sense to me to have a chronological museum. You know what? So. Tweet us at AMTDM if you too did not realize museums were 
geographic. Yes. The one thing I will add is that this reminded me of my own book organizing system at home. I, oh, right. I organize my books by color as opposed to title and Which is beautiful. author. It is very beautiful. Sure. However, somewhat nonsensical if you're actually trying to find yeah. a book. I don't know that system. Like, I really love yellow books. Yellow wood makes the book <laughs> I have actually read all of them. <laughs> All right, well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. I'll spare you the rest of the stories about my home organizing. More AM to DM is coming up next. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Dennis O'Hare, a Tony Award-winning and Emmy-nominated actor who's in the new season of Big Little Lies on HBO. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Very glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I am so excited about this new season of Big Little Lies. I think a lot of people I think, are. Yeah, I think a lot yeah, of people are. Yeah, you on to that. Yes. And I have to tell you, so, you know, I watched the last season. I read Maybe. the book. I scoured the internet far and wide to find information or any kind of spoilers about your character. Did Ira you find Farber. it? I could not. And so my question is, why so secretive? What are you trying to hold back from us? I don't even know what I can say. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm allowed to say anything. They haven't, they haven't like really vetted me properly. Um, you know, I, I feature heavily in the second part of the season. So okay. I come in episode four, five, six, seven, and I am very intertwined with a certain storyline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being, I'm being you so have to stay so okay. You know I mean? But my great joy was that I got to work with uh, Meryl Streep, okay. and um, I most of my time with her, um, and uh, and I also had an amazing time with Nicole Kidman. I got to meet everybody, um, and uh, it's a great group of people, an amazing actor, uh, actors. Also, the director Andrea Arnold is crazy good and crazy interesting and crazy and crazy amazing. And they do this thing where one director does the whole season, like mm. they did last year. So she gets to bring in this, this swath of her vision to this thing. And I think it will really pay off. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, working with Meryl Streep. Yeah. Um, you know, you were not the only new addition to this cast. No. And you mentioned just how tight-knit the cast is as well. What is it like arriving on set, coming into such a tight-knit group? How is it to get <laughs> in that fold? That group? Intimidating, you know what I mean? You, ha you have to kind of sit back and watch. They were all su super sweet. I was amazed at how friendly everybody was. Everybody walked over and said hi to me and kind of welcomed me in, uh, sitting at Video, Video Village and watching things. People would walk by and give you a, a friendly wave. It was a very, very, very chill set in a great way. Mm, that's really cool. You know, when I watch it, uh, it always feels like Monterey is almost another character. Yeah. In it. And, it, yes. and it, almost, it almost adds to kind of the elements of seriousness. And, you know, there's a lot of really heavy topics in the show, yeah. um, but there are also big moments of levity. Kind of how do you navigate that? Well, it's funny, you know, the tone of his show is set by the writers. And David E. Kelly is an amazing writer. And you read these scripts and you just get it all right from the script. Uh, Andrea Arnold, the director, also will set the tone. Um, so, and, and the, the set itself has its own ethos. It has its own sort of vibe. And you, if you're observant at all and intuitive at all, you'll plug into that and, and, and take the ride the, in the proper way. And, and they set the tone. They know their characters. They know what this thing feels like and looks like. And so they really, really ease you into it in a great way. Well, this is a big week for you because you have another movie coming out, Late Night, and in it you play a producer for Emma Thompson who is a late night talk show host. Yes. And uh, from what I heard, you actually tell her character that she's like not good for women or she doesn't like women, something along those lines. You know, well, and it's true. Emma Thompson's character is really, really regressive and really unevolved. And that's the great part about what Late Night does is it, it shows, and she doesn't change radically and become this incredibly new person, but she becomes aware of 
how much she hasn't changed and how stuck she is via Mindy Kaling's character. And I play her sort of powerless, um, you know, uh, lieutenant who both is a yes man and not a yes man. Huh. He sort of has to tell her the hard truth, but he's also terrified of her as everybody is. And Mindy Kaling comes in and she doesn't know this. And so she just speaks the truth and it blows everybody's world up. Do you feel like this plot reflects the appetite for, you know, a film really centered on a woman as a late night talk show host? Do you think it reflects any evolution in Hollywood? I would hope. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, yeah. name me the late night talk show hostess or host that's not male. I think Lily um, Singh might have a show coming up on NBC. But you know, one of the like biggies. That, one of the, yeah, one yeah, of the biggies. No, it, I mean, it hasn't, yeah. When I was um, coming up uh, many, many moons ago, uh, Linda Ellerby had an incredible show mm. called Overnight. And it was a news show, but also... It was sort of tongue-in-cheek and sort of irreverent, and I thought that that would have had a, a following or some sort of legacy, and it didn't. It sort of died. So I, I think this show is, Late Night is a corrective to that. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. We'll see if, if then maybe Emma Thompson gets her own show. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that would be awesome. I'd watch it. Yeah, well, speaking of evolution, um, over the years, you have played many characters that are near and dear to queer culture. Um, you've also been in various works that are near and dear to queer culture, from Cabaret to Milk to Dallas Buyers Club to Liz Taylor, yep. um, Russell in True Blood. I mean, I, the list yep. goes on and on. Um, are there any really iconic queer individuals that you'd want to play on screen or any projects in particular that you'd want to do? Wow, it's really interesting. I mean, there are so many amazing historical figures who I feel like we need to dig out and mm. talk about, both male, female, and, and you know, and different gendered. And uh, Tchaikovsky comes to mind. Mm. Um, Ravel comes to mind. I'm a, I'm a music buff, obviously. <laughs> um, there are these crazy figures. I mean, even someone as similar as Aaron Copeland. Mm. Do people understand that Aaron Copeland or Benjamin Britten are some of our great gay icons who haven't been properly celebrated and in their own ways really blazed uh, a trail. Obviously, Harvey Milk's the greatest yeah. in, in terms of, you know, the most recent evolution. But there's so many other unsung heroes Absolutely. who aren't actually um, promoted. I think of Stonewall. And yeah. I think about, you know, that movie, you know, at least got us familiar with some of the people who we need to know better. And so I think characters like that, I, I would love to be involved in a project like that. Mm. Well, you, uh, you know, personally, you've been really open about your family. You married yeah. your husband in 2011. Yeah. Um, you have a son. Because of the political moment that we're in, because it feels like LGBTQ rights are being chipped away Jeez. at a weekly rate, does it, feel, does it feel any more urgent to be open about your own family and your life in that way? I mean, I've, I've, I've been out since I was... 12, I think, uh, and um, <laughs> publicly as soon as I could be out, I was out, meaning as soon as anybody cared to ask me a question, I was like, I'm gay. Um, because I do feel like I don't want to live a lie on any level, but also other people need to see the example. Mm. There is, it's amazing to me how many people come up to me and talk about Liz Taylor and how Liz Taylor gave them the courage to talk to a, somebody in their life, to talk to themselves, mm. to realize something about themselves to understand something about uh, a daughter or a sibling. And uh, I, so part of that is the roles that we get to do. Ryan Murphy is amazing in creating roles that break barriers, but also in, in a public setting, be able to talk about the fact that I'm married to my husband, yeah. I have a son. Families come in all shapes and sizes and colors. And I'm glad to be an ambassador for that kind of change. And uh, I've had no negative blowback. I have to tell you, I feel so lucky. I've had no 
negative experiences around this. I've only had positive experiences. That's really cool. I mean, yeah. speaking of your family, you also said that you live in Paris, yes. where you moved to after <laughs> Trump was elected. And you've also said that you moved to Paris uh, for your son's safety, yeah. um, given police violence against people of color. Is yeah. that something that you have talked to him about yet? It's a delicate conversation. You know, you, you there, obviously you want to tell a young black man the reality but you also don't want to create fear in an eight-year-old boy's mind. So it's that delicate dance of being responsible and, and letting them know the way the world is while giving them enough hope to know that maybe the world won't be that way for you. Maybe it will change for you. It's a responsibility. My husband and I talk about it a lot, um, and we've, we've, we've danced with it delicately with him. Uh, Part of moving to Paris was obviously escaping Trump mm. um, because I don't want to live every day angry. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, he seeps in everywhere. You can't escape him. <laughs> He's everywhere. But um, part of it's escaping the gun culture of this country, mm. which I think is so out of control. Uh, we have a Supreme Court now that's even veering further to the right and understand and, and, and changing the historical understanding of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was never understood to guarantee a personal right to carry a weapon, ever. And that wasn't until the 70s when that actually happened. And this is an anomaly. We're living in an anomaly. And so until things settle down, I want to give my son a fighting chance to stay alive and to not spend every day angry. Um, I also believe in world citizenship. And I want him to understand that he is a world citizen first. He is a child of the world, and I hope he can get that by living in different cultures. Well, one of the things you mentioned is not staying angry yeah. every single day. So just as we wind down, you describe yourself as both an actor, an artist, and an activist, yeah. right? So is there any art or even activism that's really inspiring you every day, helping break through the anger? Um, I have to say the climate change movement, you know, mm -hmm. the environmental movement, the Greens have surged in Europe. This last election in Europe, I don't know if you all know about that, was amazing in that the biggest gains were amongst uh, small green parties. They placed third in France, they placed second in Germany, I think, they placed hugely in England, and that's young voters who are actually using the power to vote to make a difference, and they will make a difference. They're gonna have a voice in the European Parliament that will affect policy and affect what Europe does in a really concrete way to stop climate change. And um, vote, if you're young, vote. That's what you can do. You can organize, you can vote, and you can get the right people into power who will actually make the right policies. Well, I think that is a great note to end our yes. conversation on. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Big Little Lies premieres on Sunday, June 9th on HBO. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Welcome back, y'all. Today, we're going to try out a new segment where we'll unpack a big story on our timeline that we didn't get to cover at the top of the show. And today, to get us going, is a story about Ellen DeGeneres, who has recently come out as a survivor of sexual assault during the latest episode of David Letterman's Netflix show. Twitter Moments summed it up. I was too weak to stand up. I want other girls to not ever let someone do that. Ellen DeGeneres talked about how she was sexually abused by her stepfather as a teenager. And the comedian has seen a rush of support after coming forward. Here's a tweet from Angie Pavalatis. It was not your fault, Ellen, and you were not weak. The strength you display by talking about your abuse will empower others to speak. Thank you for your bravery. Ooh, there's a lot here to unpack. It, when I, you know, as a queer person that has followed Ellen's career forever, when I saw the stories hit yesterday, I, it took my breath away. And I think I was just so shocked that she herself, too, waited 60, almost 60 years to come forward with this through yeah. everything. And her, her story is so much about coming out. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big things that really stuck with me was that sense of blame and of self-blame, that you can be someone who is so successful in your own right and still really be grappling with these feelings and, you know, grappling with the right time to talk about it and still holding yourself accountable for something that wasn't your fault. Exactly, and it shows that, like, no matter how famous you are, the reality of certain violences that many of us have faced are Mm. pretty similar and that we need to take our own time, come out when we feel it's necessary and good for us to do so. Because as we know, Ellen's been, this happened at 16. She is now 60-something. This has been her whole life potentially defined by this moment and also keeping it quiet. You know, in the 90s, Ellen came out Mm -hmm. as queer, as one of the first lesbian women in mainstream TV, and it destroyed her career for a bit. And she's been fighting to come back from that moment of telling her truth. And now every day for most of America, you know, most of us here in New York don't watch Ellen DeGeneres like those in Lafayette, Arkansas, you know, Birmingham, Alabama. That's her core Mm -hmm. audience. And for this queer woman to say, hey, I went through something that literally colored my entire life and now I can come forward to inspire others to come forward is tremendous, I must say. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned the people for whom this would resonate a lot and the kind of people who watch her show every single day. I mean, I think for us as, you know, New York City coastal queers, if you will, people in, in the kind of media echo chamber that we can sometimes find ourselves in, We kind of forget. We can become disillusioned with Mm -hmm. Ellen sometimes. Um, Of course, you've seen the controversies, I'm sure. Uh, And we can kind of forget the impact that she has and that perhaps she is a possibility model for young folks who are grappling with some of these issues, who are survivors themselves, who are looking for the right way to articulate it. And I think many of us, and people don't take this reality with Ellen too seriously. And, you know, I've said flippant things about Ellen. I love her to death. But, you know, we, she has been one of the few people we've had in media forever, so we, you know how we treat those folks. We're like, we take them for granted. But this moment, I don't want to take for granted. I want to really hone in on the fact that every day, parents that I saw at my school growing up woke up and watched Ellen DeGeneres. Mm-hmm. And she is the person that was modeling a future for me as a kid. And now she's becoming a future or a possibility model for many folks. You know, like one in two queer folks have acknowledged that they've had a similar situation. You know, women face incredible amounts of violence across sexualities. So for Ellen to come out and say, this is my story, this was the struggle I went through, and this is what you can do to kind of get in front of it, mm. is, I mean, it's going to really touch a lot of lives. And it makes families begin talking about familial violence. Because as you and I both know, it usually happens within the home. It's not walking down the street. It is at the barbecue. It's in the, the, the living room. It's in all these places that are supposed to be safe. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things that you're pointing to is um, just how this extends the, a lot of the Me Too narratives that we've mm-hmm. seen play out, right? Over the past couple of years, we've seen high-profile media figures uh, come forward with their stories. Um, you know, we've really seen a lot of this movement centered on uh, wealthy women yeah. in Hollywood. And um, and so, you know, I am always for uh, bringing these conversations to, to new different spaces, mm-hmm. um, helping to remove the stigma, kind of democratizing this and yeah. allowing more people to have access to talk about it and feel yeah. empowered to talk about it. And do you think, I'd love to get your opinion on this because you've been reporting on this beat for a while. It's not my, my beat, but it's something I've been watching. But the Me Too movement has been so much about Hollywood and about people of certain wealth and means talking about power and sexuality and that you survive violence um, to get ahead potentially or to get a job. But this is the first time in which we're seeing power being discussed at home. How do you think the Me Too movement is going to take on Ellen's story to keep moving this narrative forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important for uh, oftentimes folks who have a lot of the power in media to Mm -hmm. be uh, trying to amplify different stories um, and Uh, You know, just to be showing that there are many different kinds of representation. So, you know, I think really 
um, for, I think, a lot of the white women who take up a lot of space in the Me Too movement, yeah. uh, you know, really asking themselves some questions about it and, um, you know, how they can use their space to amplify other stories and help remove the stigma so that more people can come forward and talk about this. For sure, for sure. Well, we want to hear what you all think about this story and others, ones that you'd like to discuss with us on the show. So be sure to tweet us using the hashtag am to dm and up next, Zach is talking about a crazy viral thread. It's crazy. Heroin's Switching gears. Switching Heroin. gears today. <laughs> Welcome back, y'all. I'm sure you all remember when Shane Morris tweeted, y'all want to hear a story about the time I accidentally transported a brick of heroin from Los Angeles to Seattle? I bet. All right, let's do this. This thread went on to tell a wild story followed by even wilder consequences. Daily Beast tech reporter and tech and internet reporter Will Sommer wrote, creator of viral Twitter heroin hoax starts GoFundMe to hide from MS-13. Will joins me now. Hello, Will. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really great to see you here so often. I hope this is like a regular thing. We're going to start going Hey, me today. too. Yeah, that's great. I'm a big fan of your work at the Daily Beast. So yeah. let's jump into the story. Shane Morris has deactivated his Twitter. Can you give a quick recap of what the thread was about for those who didn't get a chance to read it? Yeah, so basically, I mean, we're looking at potentially the first place of someone having to go into hiding uh, for making up a lie on Twitter. So, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, this is kind of a classic. I think if you're on Twitter a lot, you can recognize this sort of very fake-seeming viral story that goes on for like 200 tweets. In this case, I mean, he basically relayed this story that was supposedly a couple years old in which he, the long and the short of it is he buys a van and he finds some heroin inside of it, sells it, and then a year later, he basically tricks a member of MS-13 into buying the van at an inflated price because he thinks the heroin is still in it. So, I mean, it's a very fake-seeming story. It nevertheless racks up tens of thousands of retweets. People love it. But then it takes a turn. Yeah. And this one became quite popular and people were even tweeting, you have like Sofin Def at the New York Times tweeting quite a story, like really big folks in media were buying into this. Uh, but he's come forward to say it's fake. He wrote a Medium post saying that this wasn't real and that he was facing real troubles. Uh, but what are those troubles regarding MS-13? Is he actually being chased down by the cartel? So here's the issue. I mean, it, it's difficult to because I mean, first, so yes, he comes out and he says, oh, it's all fake. So on one hand, that's obviously a hit to his credibility, right, to begin with, right? So on the other hand, when I talked to him, he did seem genuinely very concerned uh, for his life and claims he's now going into hiding. He made this GoFundMe to raise money to go into hiding. Uh, GoFundMe is taking it pretty seriously. They say they will not give him the money unless he actually does go into hiding. So, uh, you know, it's a very unusual circumstance. How does GoFundMe track when one goes into hiding? I, 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 this is the first time I've heard this. <laughs> I think this is a pretty unique situation. And I, I think it's kind of, kind of probably the first time they're, they're dealing with someone, uh, you know, raising money to go on the lamp. But, you know, I mean, he's claimed he's changed his appearance, all this stuff. So, uh, you know, we, we shall see. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's certainly a unique situation and maybe the first time this has happened. Is GoFundMe needing to change some policies now? Is this, is this what you're hearing on that end? <laughs> well, you know, it's a great question. I mean, they seem to have a pretty open open take on it. I mean, they're just like, well, if he really does need to hide from MS-13, maybe. I mean, I think there's a larger question of like, is MS-13 monitoring viral Twitter threads that get aggregated on like Boing Boing? I mean, you know, is, is this really such a such an issue? Is this guy really in danger? Um, you know, that he claims he is. And wouldn't you consider other government agencies or a government agency in general to go to instead of GoFundMe for protection? I'm thinking of the DEA would maybe be a good route for protection here. <laughs> Right. I mean, so yeah, he claims he, he, he's been working with police or something and he just has to, he has to hide. I, I mean, it's, it, 
it, it's a very unusual situation to be to be sure. When you spoke to him, did he tell you anything about his future plans? Uh, I, I can't imagine what life looks like when you become so famous for lying in such a big way. Right, right. I mean, well, you know, given that he is supposedly going to hiding, most of it was off the record. Uh, but, but you know, he does have he does have plans to uh, kind of disappear, supposedly. Uh, you know, I asked him, you know, is this a lesson for other people who might be looking to uh, have a big viral lie on Twitter? And, you know, he, he claims he's just kind of in this nightmare now. And he's just like, oh, you know, it wasn't worth it. You know, don't don't make up big claims. And certainly don't make them make big claims about international gangs. Yeah, I would assume so. The cartel has quite a history of not being nice, per se. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> so what are some other examples of viral lies that have had real-life consequences? Sure. I mean, you know, th- there was this one a couple years ago where this Bachelor producer claimed he had this whole, uh, he kind of made up this this thing where he was like passing notes on an airplane with some with kind of a passive-aggressive passenger. It was like a big hit. And then he said he had to come out and say, oh, no, it's a hoax. You know, and, and, and I mean, obviously he worked for The Bachelor, so it's not like, you know, he, he wasn't like a reporter or like a public official. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, these kind of things, every so often, I mean, I think we, we can basically assume if you see a viral Twitter thread and the person tweeting it has more than like a thousand followers, uh, I think you can pretty much assume it's a lie. Okay, well, well I'm looking forward to your guide to spotting fake viral stories. <laughs> Hitting Daily Beast soon. So thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to coming again when you wear a blazer and I'll dress me again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Will. So don't go away, everyone. Up next is Alex and I responding to your tweets. We'll see you then. Welcome back. This is definitely one of my favorite parts of the show. Yes. When we get to hear from you, Zach, we survived day two. Day two. We're here. I'm alive. <laughs> we talked about heroin. We covered a lot we, of ground. We went from abortion rights, Supreme Court cases, heroin, and Dennis O'Hare. Yes. It's really a lot of ground yes. to cover. We contain multitudes. Yes, we so are. One of the things we I are love. dynamic. Well, listen, let's get to some of these tweets. Nick tweeted this after my sit down with Dennis O'Hare. Please come back to American Horror Story Dennis. Right? He's he's incredible. He's really, I, I mean, he has been doing queer representation for years before we even had language. Yeah. I know in some of his earlier works, he wasn't not talking about being queer. And it wasn't yeah. something people were asking. So as he said, you know, I started talking about when people ask. People don't realize that the reason why celebrities don't come out sometimes is that their publicists won't let them talk about it. And the fact that he was sitting there like, just ask, just yeah. ask. I'm like, yes, yes, yeah. this representation. Been talking about it for a long time. Uh, yes. So we wanted to know what your childhood show would look like, uh, which one you would like to be rebooted and what your favorite one was. Um, and we got something back from Joe Lee, who said, I want a live action magic school bus with Tracy Ellis Ross as Miss Frizzle. We didn't have a cable. We didn't have cable growing up. So PBS was lit in my house. And let me just say, if Tracy Ellis Ross was to grace us as Miss Frizzle, I would buy the swag. I'd watch every day. I would live tweet. The show would have a segment about Tracy Ellis Ross and Miss Frizzle. I just, a big fan. 100%. Like, give me a tote bag, a Blu-ray DVD. I will tune in every single day. I love that idea. Somebody out there who is listening to us, please please make that happen. Tag Tracy. See if she's into it and we'll get our our people, her people, our people, and y'all's people all and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Well, Kristen Baptiste had this after our conversation about Ellen DeGeneres. She tweeted, I'm so glad she spoke out about it, which for sure, I mean- Yeah, it's it is. I think, and we're going to see that more and more on Twitter. People just feel 
relief because you know yeah. you assume so many people are going through these things and you're just waiting for them to say something. Yeah. And one of the other things is we're going to be having more segments like that. We're going to be talking about uh, some of these issues that we don't get to cover in the top of the show. And I think that we really do want to hear from you if there's anything yep. you ever want us to tackle. Anything we don't cover at the top of the show but you want us to bring it up later, be sure to tweet at either of us. Yes, please let us know. And we'd love to be in this dialogue with you going going forward. Uh, so we want to thank our guests today, Zoe Tillman, Emma O'Connor, Will Sommer, and Dennis O'Hare. We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, you guys. Happy tweeting. Gotta dance it out, you know. <laughs>